Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Erin Lee Mock, and you are listening once again to New Books in Popular Culture. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking to Jennifer Frost. She's the author of Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, Celebrity Gossip and American Conservatism. She's currently the senior lecturer in history at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and the author of An Interracial Movement of the Poor, Community Organizing, and the New Left in the 1960s. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me on the show. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm a U.S. historian, went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I've always been interested in women's history as well as political history. My first book was about uh, the new left and radicalism during the 1960s, and as I was casting about for a new project, I decided I wanted to keep with women's history, and uh, but move to the other side of the political spectrum and learn more about conservatism. And and along the way, that got me to Hedda Hopper, the famous Hollywood gossip columnist from Hollywood's Golden Age. The uh, the, the project that I ended up um, working with is on her career rather than a biography of Hopper. There is a popular biography out about Hopper, but nobody had studied the uh, her career and the relationship she had with her readers as well as her political impact. So that became my angle into talking about her. What was wonderful is in getting started on researching Hopper is that her papers are at the motion picture um, uh, archives in Beverly Hill. And her papers are there, and she happened to keep many of her letters from her readers. This is quite uncommon in an industry that tends to dispose of letters from fans uh, because they get so many. It's estimated that, uh, you know, during the golden age of Hollywood, stars and uh, celebrity gossip uh, call were getting you know tens of thousands of letters um, every month, and so there was no way to keep all these. They tended to be um, thrown away. And these letters are a wonderful entree into the meaning of film and the stars. And uh, so, in doing research on her, I confirmed that she was the powerhouse of Golden Age Hollywood that most people uh, remember. Um, that she, in writing her column and talking about the private lives and scandals of the stars could have an impact on their reception with audiences as well as their relationship with their bosses um, in the big studios. And she 
could really um, hurt somebody's career. Uh, and um, one of the um, stars used to say that she had two weapons. Her words uh, could kill you or her silence could kill you. So if she ignored you, that was bad. But she could also say uh, bad things about you, and that could hurt your career as well. So she had certainly that kind of impact on people's professional lives and and could have an impact on their personal lives as well. There's some stars like Joseph Cotton was so angry with her for constantly linking him to Deanna Durbin, his co-star in a film, and it was hurting his marriage. And uh, he was very you know angry with how that was having an impact on his private life. So she certainly had a lot of power in the industry, even though she was dependent on the studios and the studios gave her information. But she also, you know, sort of had an in-between relationship with the studios and with her readers. And she used that, uh, really it was a delicate balance or dance even, of give and take between relating to the studios, relating to her readers, relating to the stars, and trying to have, you know, some independent base for herself. So uh, definitely focused on that and her impact on Hollywood. But the more I got into the study, I also realized how important she was in terms of conservative politics. And this is something that people also knew that she was was anti-communist and that she supported the Hollywood blacklist in the 1940s and 50s. But what I discovered is it's not only that, that that she also uh, was anti-civil rights and she supported the roles of um, what we would consider sort of racially stereotypical um, actors and actresses like Hattie McDaniel and supported them in playing uh, these sort of stereotypical roles that the NAACP and civil rights actors activists were criticizing. She also opposed entry into World War II. She was an isolationist. Now, the majority of Americans were isolationists um, until Pearl Harbor, so she wasn't you know, completely out of the norm. But what she does is try to organize through her column a mother's movement against the war, and she calls upon her readers to mobilize. And these are the types of things that um, no one else had ever really uh, talked about. So that was quite exciting to confirm her power within Hollywood, but also to find that she used her gossip column as a platform and uh, to talk about her political views and to mobilize her readers around political issues. Wow, there's so much I want to pick up on from what you've said, but I'd first like to ask you, most work on Hopper seems to consider her within the context of other gossip columnists, primarily Luella Parsons, her rival, and Walter Winchell, and there was conservatism in their work as well. So I'm curious how you see Hopper as unique and particularly significant. Well, that's a that's a very good point. So she is she's not the only uh, you know celebrity uh, gossip columnist that is talking about politics. Actually, Ed Sullivan also talked about politics, and other columnists did too. I think what is different about her, she certainly is more political than Luella Parsons. I mean, I don't think, and uh, Luella Parsons' biographer, uh, recent biographer Samantha Barbus would say her heart wasn't in politics in the same way that Hopper's was. Hopper, from the beginning, I mean, she is somebody who gets 
the right to vote with women's suffrage in 1920 and is, you know, talking about women need to be participating in politics. She's campaigning for Herbert Hoover, um, you know, in the 1932 election. She actually runs for office, a sort of local level Republican Party office in Los Angeles in the 30s. And she doesn't win. Um, she said the voters had a better idea than electing her. And all the way through her career, she would muse, oh, what would it be like if I was in politics or my non-existent political career she'd talk about. So she was, I would say, much more political, certainly than Luella Parsons. And, um, you know, just in, in the game, I guess, to a certain extent, she would email, uh, sorry, email, she would write uh, to, uh, you know, the, uh, the President Eisenhower, and she'd write to Joseph McCarthy and tell them to get along um, and, you know, that they can't divide the Republican Party around the issue of anti-communism. Very, she was very focused on women. Her audience was mostly uh, women, at least what we can tell from the letters that have come in. Um, at the height of her career, she had an audience uh, or readership estimated at 32 million. And I would say about 80% of the letters that came to her were from women. And through her Republican Party activism, she also very much focused on mobilizing women and working with the Republican women's clubs. And one of the um, heads of the Republican women's club said, if we could have put a halo around uh, all of your hats, we would, because of her fundraising and her activism efforts. So I would say these Upchill as well, of course, they, they you know, met with presidents and they expressed political opinions and they, and, you know, to a certain extent, you could argue, um, uh, perhaps mobilize their readers. But we don't have letters from them to show the same kind of relationship Hopper had. And I would say her activism is what really, and that consistent activism all through her career is what makes her different and, and, and significant. What commonalities did you find among the letter writers? Well, um, apart from them being uh, mostly women, uh, what is uh, interesting about them is they were predominantly married and with children and coming from cities. Now, the bulk of the letters, which actually makes sense, came from the big metropolitan areas where her main papers were. So she is syndicated through the New York Daily News Chicago Tribune Syndicate. And her home paper was the LA Times. So she gets a lot of letters from the LA region, but also the Chicago and the New York area. And that makes sense. But she also gets letters from all around the rest of the country too, you know, from North Dakota and from, you know, Atlanta, Georgia. So I think you do get a sense that she's got some breadth of audience. And uh, what is amazing about those letters, and I think it's true when you talk to other scholars of popular culture when they're working with reader response, you know, these letters are often very revealing of these people's lives. They'll talk about their own personal issues, especially in situations where there's a star scandal, for example, uh, when Elizabeth Taylor ostensibly stole Eddie Fisher uh, from Debbie Reynolds. Uh, They were very upset about this, Um, you know, lots of letters exist in her uh, papers around this case. And many of the women, and also men, uh, the fewer men, but writing in would talk about their own divorces and their own situations where their spouse may have cheated on them, etc. So what is fascinating is the way in which these readers use those letters and their relationship with Hopper 
to work through and talk about their own issues. So what's happening with these stars becomes uh, a, a way for them to think about their own lives. And I guess that gets to the larger point about uh, the function of gossip and realizing um, I, I actually have always enjoyed gossip and I come from a big family where uh, gossip is actually mostly positive. Um, it's really sharing news uh, and you, you actually have to have gossip to manage in a big family because not everybody can talk to one another. So I've always thought of gossip in a more positive way. And so when I was doing work on gossip and seeing many um, uh, scholars sort of think about gossip as uh, seen as trivial or idle talk or, or damaging, uh, I think what uh, is striking about Hopper's gossip and what it meant to their readers is that often it was a very positive forum for thinking about their lives, working through the contradictions and changes of uh, the mid-20th century. And so I guess part of this book also is saying gossip has, it's powerful, we all would agree with that, but it also has some positive sides as well as the negative sides that most of us uh, think about when we think about gossip. Even though the book's not a biography, you do talk about the ways that Hopper's private life played into her public persona and vice versa, and also the ways that those elements of her private life remained more private than many other things she was saying about many celebrities. I was wondering if you could talk about how her persona may or may not have opened up these readers to what she had to say. Well, I think that is one of the ironies of uh, the story is that uh, here she makes her career exposing everybody's uh, private life, and yet for herself, uh, she actually is, is fairly private. Uh, and in her one marriage, which she uh, was married to DeWolf Hopper um, in the 19-teens, and it's a relatively short marriage. They have one child, um, and she ends up divorcing him. And, uh, you know, she he was a big Broadway star. She had been in theater, and then uh, she is making movies by that point in time. And she doesn't want her private life discussed in the media. And so when journalists would ask her questions about her private life, she would say, it's none of your business. You know, private affairs are private. So, you know, it's quite an irony that here she ends up making her career in publicizing the, you know, private talk about uh, people's lives. But also, she was a very moral person. And, you know, here she's, you know, living and making her career in in so-called Hollywood Babylon. Um, But she didn't have um, a lot of affairs um, and and relationships with men. She had a very good circle of women friends, and she had a few significant uh, relationships, um, and in in some of those situations, her her heart was broken. Uh, But uh, she lived a very uh, upstanding life, and in a way that justified her, uh, I think, feeling of being a moral custodian, that she could judge other people's lives because her life was you know, so uh, uh, pure. And in fact, Confidential Magazine, which was the um, you know, kind of scurrilous tabloid, uh, put a reporter and a private detective on her for about six months in the 1950s, and they couldn't find anything. And um, she just said, of course they couldn't find anything. I'm, you know, there's nothing really to find. So, but what she does do, so she's not... 
I mean, she's living a very, you know, sort of upstanding moral life, so she's not somebody who's subject to scandal. On the other hand, um, in her column, she does forge a personal, or tries to forge a personal relationship with her readers. So her column, and I think it's why then the readers respond in the way they do with their letters, talking about their personal lives. So she would talk about her new hairdo or or one of her new hats that she uh, had purchased. She would talk about how messy her office was or if her mother was visiting. She actually tried to keep her son, um, who um, William Hopper, Bill Hopper, who ends up uh, playing Paul Drake on the TV show Perry Mason. She keeps him out of her column pretty much, and that was as a respect to him. He didn't want to be in her column. But she does you know, talk about the, the, the basis of her life, and she would do things like share recipes um, and, uh, you know, and, of course, talk about her favorite movies and any parties she was going to and how much fun she had, etc. So it is, but this is something that is true of other gossip columns, too. Luella Parsons also struck a very personal tone. So that wasn't un- unusual, that kind of personal relationship. I think what's unusual for a scholar is that we've got these letters that show the, um, the impact of that kind of personal touch and how it really made her readers, I think, very loyal uh, to her and really feel connected to her. And even things like how they address her, you know, dear Hedda, you know, dearest Hedda, you know, as if she is, you know, one of their friends, um, one of their best friends. So that intimacy um, certainly was felt, even if we could say, obviously, that's a, uh, you know, manufactured, um, you know, uh, to, to a large degree. Maybe the fact that she was so willing to appear in television and film media concurrently with having her gossip column played a role in this feeling that readers had that they knew her? Oh, yes. I think that is, I guess that you could argue another side to her. Um, I mean, Walter Winchell had a lot of charisma and star quality. There's no doubt, uh, and, and that was very important to his career. But compared to Luella Parsons, her main rival, I mean, Hedda was was a star. She was a you know a star journalist, and she had a lot of um, panache and a lot of charisma. She was you know beautifully dressed. She's famous for her hats, which were um, often zany and pretty wacky, you know, with, you know, with the Eiffel Tower on top or fresh endive and, and grapes and, and this sort of thing. And she often you know couldn't see where she was going because of the hat. So she was quite a flamboyant um, with her hats, but she. She also was an arbiter of fashion, and she dressed very well. She stayed trim all her life. She had a very rigorous beauty regime, um, and you know kept herself looking um, very good. Uh, you know, her career starts when she's 52. Um, most people would say, you know, that's you know uh, obviously toward the end of your life. She ends up having a 27-year career from the age of 52, you know, on until she dies. So she is has a lot of charisma. She has been an actress both in theater, on radio, in movies. She gravitates to television. She is one of the uh, you know, first people to say Hollywood needs to engage with television. We can't see it as you know, something negative. And she tries to get her own television show, and she is unsuccessful uh, getting that. But she is a guest on all sorts of game shows and Playhouse 90, and very famously, the I Love Lucy show. And in fact, for me, uh, growing up watching I Love Lucy reruns, my kind of shadow memory of Hopper uh, when I started thinking about this project 
you know, a decade or so ago, was remembering the, the crazy woman in the hat, you know, on the, on the I Love Lucy show. But yes, that kept her in readers' uh, uh, minds. She is a, a presence. And I think her, also, she is very witty. And I mean, it was a kind of a, a mean sense of humor, but uh, very witty. And I, I tried to put as much of that as I could in the book because I think it shows her, um, you know, her style uh, very much, though. And I think readers enjoyed the kind of catty wittiness of her, uh, of her sense of humor. So she was a presence, there's, there's no doubt. And when she arrives on the scene as a gossip columnist, she starts her column in 1939. And, you know, by 1940, Time magazine is covering her, saying she's making a splash. She arrives on the scene, and she takes it by storm. Now, Luella Parsons was not that happy with that because she felt that here, you know, Hopper was trying to do in a year or so what had taken her 20 years to do. But I think part of it was that Hopper style that really drew people to her and got her attention. I definitely want to talk more about her style and in particular her meanness later (laughs) on in the program. But first, I want you to just give us a sense of how you see the intersections of celebrity and politics, both over the course of Hopper's heyday and, if possible, beyond. Yes. Well, I think when I first got into this project, I really thought, oh, she is very unique, you know, that she is combining celebrity gossip and politics. Uh, but then as I was working on the project and doing research, uh, discovering that there are, you know, the, well, not only the uh, very uh, important study of Walter Winchell by, by Neil Gabler, uh, but Gail Collins, the New York Times um, columnist, she has written a wonderful book called Scorpion Tongues about gossip in American politics, you know, going back to the early national period. So it was realizing that actually gossip has has been part of our political, uh, you know, sphere and our public sphere, you know, for a very long time. So Hopper was more, I think, a, an inheritor of a tradition of, of linking those two together. But I think what is key about her era, and then as we move on from there, is the boundary um, uh, between what is uh, permissible in public um, and in and you know, kind of. Shape over time and more and more and more intimate details become uh, more permissible in public. But we have lots of examples from, you know, there are rumors um, and discussions of Jefferson's uh, affair with Sally Hemings, you know, which uh, his, his slave, uh, one of his slaves, uh, that was discussed in politics in the early national period. Uh, Grover Cleveland, when he was running for president, the um, Republicans made a big deal about his out-of-wedlock child, and there was, you know, campaign songs about that. So it's not to say that gossip and private life and scandal hasn't been part of public life all along, but I think it's still seen early on as a bit disreputable a bit disrespectful, um, that you don't, you know, kind of just uh, enjoy the details, you know, and sort of the, the, the guilty pleasure. It's still sort of not that uh, acceptable. But I would say Walter Winchell makes the big shift where he, he really starts putting um, private information in public, and so Hopper goes on from there. What's different about her is she is also um, talking about people's political 
political beliefs. And if you think about it, we think about politics as very public, but of course we have the secret ballot and our political beliefs are, are, are by right, we can keep those private. So she is not only interested in exposing people's private lives, but their what they political beliefs that they might want to uh, keep private. But the other thing is she still, there is criticism of her uh, for what she does. I think in the mainstream media, you know, when she does, um, you know, kind of step over the line, there is uh, criticism. And I guess what I would say sort of just increasingly changes over time until we get to today is that there seems to be, um, we still criticize and we still have people saying, oh, we don't need to hear about you know Monica Lewinsky in the in the Bill Clinton case or Anthony Weiner's you know uh, photographs. There are people saying, "Is this what we should be talking about? Is this the most important?" But we have become much more tolerant of more of the private being revealed in public, um, and she is definitely you know helps with that process. This notion that the political behavior that we once were okay with being private is now public in the case of celebrities seems particularly key to the Cold War era. I'm interested in the exception to the rule case with Hopper, which of course is Lucille Ball. Right. Well, and this is where, you know, that realization that people are contradictory or uh, hypocritical, uh, you know, that they're not always uh, consistent in their, uh, you know, uh, policies and approaches to things. But yes, uh, Lucille Ball was caught up in a uh, really red scare scandal um, at a point in which her career, um, she is the number one, uh, she has the number one television show on, um, uh, on television with I Love Lucy. And it is revealed uh, that she had registered um, uh, to vote as a member of the Communist Party, and they even um, there was a photostat, uh, you know, copy of her card of that where she signs up for this. And it was splashed all over the newspapers. You know, this is sort of America's sweetheart or, you know, most popular television star being caught up in uh, this red scare. And she comes out and says that she had, um, you know, registered to vote um, communist to please her socialist uh, grandfather. Um, And this is in the 1930s when she's done this, so it's coming out in the 1950s, but she had originally registered in the 1930s. And she said it was to please her socialist grandfather, and she never really, uh, you know, seriously uh, bought into this, etc. Now, of course, in studies of American communism in Hollywood, um, scholars have found that she was a really um, a very reliable supporter of left liberal efforts. I mean, she had fundraising um, meetings in her home and um, things like that. So she was seen as a loyal you know, left liberal supporter. And certainly when the Hollywood 10 are called before HUAC in um, uh, 1947, she is supporting, uh, you know, their rights um, in, in, in their hearings before HUAC. So she is somebody who you would say is on the you know, left liberal side and that this, in fact, she had registered to vote. But it, by 1953, things have changed and she, uh, you know, basically excuses it as sort of a youth Youthful folly, and uh, and to you know make her her grandfather happy. Well, she pretty much backs off from the public persona, and her husband. 
um, Ricky, um, uh, Desi Arnaz, uh, the famous Ricky Ricardo in the, in the uh, TV show, Desi Arnaz takes over and uh, really becomes her spokesman and defends her and says, um, you know, there's, there's nothing read about um, Lucille. The only thing read about her is her hair. Um, and even that is not legitimate because, of course, uh, Lucille Ball dyed her hair uh, red. And the storm pretty much blows over. Now, Hopper puts that line and uh, the story about them, um, she gets a front-page story out of it, so it's it's good for Hopper. She interviews them and put, does a front-page story in the L.A. Times about the case, and she, in the first story, she's fairly neutral, but in the second story, she takes Lucille Ball's side, and uh, her readers are shocked. Given that her readers are used to her being anti-communist and going after, you know, the Hollywood with Ted and anybody else who's been accused of communism, uh, she gets a flood of letters from readers criticizing her for her stance and saying, how can you be taken in uh, by Lucille Ball? Um, you know, she's obviously a commie, and why are you supporting her? Um, and so I think that's quite interesting because most of the letters to Hopper support her in whatever she's doing. You know, politically or um, you know, with regard to Hollywood. So there's the, this is this is probably one of the most significant groups of critical letters uh, to Hopper. And um, she doesn't address uh, these letters in her column, which she often would use readers' letters in her column. She doesn't address it, so she keeps silent about it. She sees the contradiction. There is no doubt about that. And the way I and other scholars have looked at this, um, have looked at what happens with Ball, and I'm looking at, it, of course, what Hopper does, um, what most scholars would say, Ball, by that point in time, is is a big fish. There's a lot invested in her show, um, both in terms of sponsors, both in terms of you know the production company, that they don't want to risk this great moneymaker. It is the number one television show at that point in time. So there's resources invested in her. The other thing is that HUAC uh, had her come and testify twice in secret or private hearings. So already HUAC is protecting her, right? They're not having her come to a big public hearing where everybody would know what she's saying. So she's being treated with, you know, kid gloves on the part of the government, the FBI, you know, HUAC, as well as Hopper and, um, and the industry. So it's not that Hopper is different from any of these other powerful um, institutions. So she follows along with that. Um, but I think the other part to that is that they were friends. They were friends. They lived in the same Beverly Hills neighborhood. They used to go for walks uh, in the morning. When Hopper uh, dies, um, uh, she leaves her limo, her limousine to Lucille Ball. Um, Lucille Ball, you know, brings her on her, you know, wonderful television show. Get that's a lot of exposure for Hopper. Uh, both I Love Lucy and then the Lucille Ball show. Hopper's on the show, and so there is. They like each other, and there is also, you know, a mutual benefit there. So what this shows, um, and actually I think Tom Doherty says this best, is that, you know, in, in the Red Scare, you know, the big fish tended to get away. Um, and the people who get caught up in it are the little fish, you know, the ones who aren't uh, quite as powerful. And, and I think Ball is a good example of that. Hopper also is different in some ways from other columnists and particularly gossipers in Confidential and other tabloids of the time in that she 
mostly eschews the lavender scare. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I think that, again, this is where, you know, again, people aren't simple. And so even though I say she's a conservative and she has these conservative politics in terms of, you know, being anti-communist and being against civil rights, etc., she is, I would argue, she's a feminist. Um, she would never call herself that, but she always argued for women's equality in politics, in the family, in the workplace. She often campaigned uh, for women directors and screenwriters in Hollywood. She would write columns uh, about uh, women who were um, on the rise or got, got a, you know, a chance at making a movie. She would make a big deal about that. And as her career um, you know, is waning um, into the 1960s, she laments the fact that, that women aren't as prominent in Hollywood as they had been in the 1920s and 30s um, and 40s, and she misses some of the actresses like Rosalind Russell who played strong female characters. Um, and similarly, she is, um, you know, some people talked about her being homophobic. I mean, some gay um, Hollywood uh, insiders have said, oh, she was definitely homophobic. And she made some comments that you could see that way. On the other hand, I'm pretty convinced by William Mann, who is a writer of Hollywood, who's uh, written a wonderful biography of Elizabeth Taylor. And he says that um, it, that's too simplistic to just see her as homophobic. Um, that, in fact, she had a lot of friends who were gays and lesbians. I believe her business manager uh, was lesbian. So she she had good friends, um, and she also was kept Hollywood's gay secrets uh, really until the end of her career. So she is uh, somebody who is, um, you know, very much um, respectful on some level of some people's private life. And she helps construct, for example, you know, a heterosexual. Um, uh, background for some, uh, you know, gay stars like Rock Hudson. I mean, she helps write columns about, you know, his marriage and, and this sort of thing uh, to show that he is, you know, um, that he's straight. So she is, I would, you know, I think coming off of man, I am convinced that she's more tolerant of homosexuality than some people have said. The issue for her was she wanted to know what people's private lives were. She wanted to know their real lives. And so if somebody was open with her and honest with her, she then was very comfortable keeping their secrets in public. It was the gays and lesbians who tried to pass with her and with the rest of Hollywood that she wasn't as happy with. I mean, in a sense, she wanted the inside knowledge. She wanted the kind of relationship where people were forthright with her. And so when people weren't, that's when she um, was more uh, resentful. But as her career progresses, and as we have these magazines like Confidential and others coming to, to the fore, she starts getting pressured. Her material isn't as explosive and as exclusive as it had been 
early on, and she's feeling more pressure to reveal, especially uh, homosexual secrets. And so she does, you start to see that uh, a bit more. Um, and in fact, in her second set of memoirs, uh, she talks uh, about Michael Wilding, um, one of uh, Elizabeth Taylor's husbands, her third husband, as gay. And um, she gets slapped with a libel suit. Wilding slaps her with a libel suit. And um, the main thing in defending herself is she could not get anybody to testify that, in fact, he had uh, was gay or had had um, uh, homosexual relationships, and she loses the case. And what Mann argues is that Wilding's um, you know, gay friends stand by him. They don't uh, go and, and support Hopper. And she loses that libel case, and that's at the end of her career um, in the 60s. And it was a big blow, I think, in terms of her credibility, her sense of power, and also her finances, because uh, she ended up having to pay some money, and it really hurt her uh, you know, kind of retirement plans. Um, so I think uh, she is, again, you know, uh, you know, people are contradictory, right? And I, I, there's some who say she was homophobic or felt she was, but others saying, no, she had a lot of friends. She was a good friend um, to many gays and lesbians and that she did keep Hollywood's uh, homosexual secrets at least to the end of her uh, career. Now, one thing that I think is interesting, though, is you mentioned the Lavender Scare, and that's where her anti-communism really comes to the fore. She was quite, and her Republican Party uh, partisanship, she was very comfortable using any kind of rumors of homosexuality in a partisan way. So she isn't you know, trying to hurt Hollywood insiders uh, by revealing um, their homosexual secrets. But she is very comfortable thinking about it or releasing information uh, or rumors about politicians, Democratic politicians who, who might be gay. So there she's happy to use that information in a political sense. She uses it less in a professional sense in, in, within Hollywood. In talking about the Wilding libel case, you mentioned her weakening credibility in the 60s. I was curious, was she generally considered credible? Well, I would think overall uh, there were jokes about, and actually Luella Parsons too, uh, you know, getting their facts wrong, uh, limited fact-checking uh, for their columns, etc. So there always were those kinds of uh, comments uh, being made. Um, and uh, I think, you know, she went on information, you know, and so it, it's that whole, uh, the whole issue about, you know, your informants, you know, how reliable are your informants? And she did, you know, at times publish information that um, she went with, even though she may, you know, didn't have a lot of confirmation on it. And there were times when she did have to retract uh, comments, and she would make funny comments like, "Oh, my typewriter slipped, and that's why I made that error," you know, you know, things like that. Um, and she also just got basic facts wrong. So you know, she would sometimes have refer to an older movie, and it would be the wrong title or, um, you know, say somebody was in this movie and they weren't. And that's one thing her readers do is uh, they kind of act like her fact checkers and they'll send letters to her correcting, you know, her mistakes saying you didn't get that right, you didn't get uh, this right. But 
but this is where uh, I would say, you know, in most cases, um, her information is fairly benign. I mean, it, it is private information, but it's about things having their kids or christenings or travel or getting married. Um, a lot of her private information was information that came from press releases or came from interviews, right, with stars. And so that, of course, is credible. Um, it's with the more scandalous, you know, sorts of details where uh, there's times where she is uh, playing fast and loose. Um, and she does get things wrong. I mean, for example, she claims in her column um, at one point that Charlie uh, Chaplin is going to be, uh, you know, part of the Hollywood Ten um, and be uh, going to the hearings and things like that. And she she names other other people too. And you know, in the end, they're not subpoenaed. Um, and so, um, you know, she is incorrect on some of those things. But and that's a way to tar those people's names by mentioning them in her column. So that is something that uh, people pay attention to and very much criticized. It's interesting that in the, actually right around the Ball case time, 1952 and 53, she does also get some criticisms from people on the right, anti-communists, uh, columnists, as well as the chair of HUAC, the um, House Committee on American Activities, for playing fast and loose with her facts and making statements that she can't back up. So she is, she, there's kind of a backlash against her um, in the early 50s that says, you know, that she better be careful with what she's saying. I mean, James um, John Wood, who's head of HUAC, he says, um, you know, keep your mouth shut or we're going to haul you in here and, you know, hear what you have to say. So that, I think, is an important thing, too, is that, you know, she wasn't completely supported by what you, who you'd su- assume her were her allies on the right. Um, and so her reputation grows over time in the 50s and 60s as very eccentric, as kind of this right-wing crank. Um, and so that, and also that she is, um, you know, she's getting older and she's not adapting to the new culture in Hollywood and very critical of youth culture and, you know, the, you know critical of the Beatles and Elvis Presley and all that. So she starts to become looked as, as this, you know, old-fashioned, you know, um, out-of-step person um, as time goes on. And I have to say, for me, um, I mean, I like her, you know, even though you know, our politics aren't the same and I know she was mean to people and stuff, you you have, you know, you get affection, I think, when you're working on these kinds of projects. And, you know, she, she was a force to be reckoned with and that really appealed to me. And I have to say, as writing the last few chapters, I felt sad because you see, um, you know, her power whittling away, respect for her whittling away, and she's grasping, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what to do, and, you know, she can't, uh, you know, she can't get traction. And so in that sense, it is, you know, it's a classic story of sort of a rise and fall, you know, of somebody coming into power, you know, she makes the cover of Time magazine in 1947, you know, she is a force to be reckoned with, and then you see the waning of that power um, and respect for her over time. Which is partially about the demise of the studio system, right? So could you tell us a little bit about how her interactions with studios facilitated her incredibly powerful presence in Hollywood? Yes, well, she is, you know, a product of, of the studios. I mean, she had a contract uh, with MGM in the 1920s, and she, you know, appeared in um, uh, hundreds of movies. 
And uh, she continues to make movies. Later on, she's in Sunset Boulevard in uh, 1950. So she makes appearances all along the way. So she's a product of the studio system. Um, and then as she writes her gossip column, I mean, she's an, she's an insider. Um, and that's actually one of the things that you see with celebrity uh, gossip columnists and celebrity journalists is, you know, often they are insiders, you know, that they are form these friendships with uh, celebrities and are able to get sort of the inside scoop because of that relationship. But she is very dependent on the studios, giving her, um, you know, she gets the press releases from them, but she also gets access, you know, access to the stars for interviews, access to the studios to go, you know, watch films being made, etc. Um, so, and she would get even, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, secret information, I guess, in the sense of, you know, who, what, what stars were, be cons- were being considered for what roles. And she could publish that, you know, and she could even weigh in on thinking that, oh, this person should be cast in that role or that person should, should be cast in that role because she knows they're being considered and so she wants to weigh in on her views on who should be cast. You know, she also has inside information on who's being lined up for the Oscars and, you know, she's very important for various Oscar campaigns. For example, Joan Crawford, um, with Mildred Pierce in 1945. She helps, you know, launch that campaign. So she's very dependent on the studios. On the other hand, you know, again, the issue of credibility, if she was just a shill for the industry, her readers would have caught on to that. It, you can tell in their letters it's important to them that she is not just um, you know, replicating what the studios want. And you see this very interestingly um, in the case of Judy Garland. Uh, when Judy Garland attempts suicide um, in 1950, Hopper criticizes vaguely, but it's there, um, or you know, implicitly, but it's there. She uh, criticizes Criticizes Garland's bosses is the phrase she uses. Well, of course, she's talking about MGM. She's talking about Louis B. Mayer um, and uh, criticizing the studios of MGM for overworking Garland, um, who, 1948, she's the MGM's top box office star. And so she is comfortable criticizing um, these studios. And so that's the give and take, I guess. She's dependent on them, but she also has some um, freedom of action. And she uses it. And in fact, some producers say, wait a second, we're giving her all this information. You know, why we're letting her sock it to us. Um, we, we need more control over her. But they, they needed her too. You know, publicity um, still today um, is the lifeblood of, of the movie industry. And so given her readership and also very significantly during Hollywood's golden age, the 30s and the 40s, the industry understands, uh, believes that the main audience for Hollywood movies is women. They believe that women are making 70 to 80 percent of the decisions of who goes to the movies. Now that's going to change over time and I think that's part of her waning power too that in the 1950s you get um, you know, the waning of the industry, television comes on to the fore and the youth audience becomes much more important, particularly young men and that's where we're at today when you think about um, what's the audience that studios really try to get. So her power absolutely mirrors that of the studio. So as the studios wane and as the audience for Hollywood uh, pictures changes, her hold um, on her audience of mostly women 
ends up uh, becoming seen as not as important uh, for Hollywood. And in fact, her readers writing in the 50s and 60s are lamenting, you know, the loss of old Hollywood and the, um, you know, old movies that were made during the golden age and, and uh, really uh, not liking the new kinds of movies on the scene in the 50s and 60s, which are much more explicit sexually, much, much more violent. Um, and, uh, you know, Hopper saw them as negative, you know, sort of negative views of America and human nature rather than the more, you know, happy uh, ending types of Hollywood movies that she liked, uh, you know, from the 1930s and, and 40s. Blackboard Jungle, of course, is one of the major examples against which she railed at the time. But it's also interesting because um, Sidney Poitier is a certain kind of racial characterization that she was not necessarily in favor of. Could you connect this, this antipathy toward youth culture and her particular views on race? Yes. Well, she is, uh, I mean, I think it's important to say again, you know, she would see herself as very good in terms of race. Um, she uh, is a Republican Party activist. She sees um, African Americans as important to the Republican Party, you know, the party of Lincoln. She tries to mobilize uh, both black women and um, other uh, black uh, party members. So she would see herself as very uh, good on race. And she also is reach, reaches out and forms relationship with prominent black stars like Hattie McDaniel, um, James Baskett, who starred in uh, the Disney film Song of the South in 1946. And she's very, uh, but what, how she is is she definitely sees them as you know inferior, um, and she is what we would call a racial paternalist. Like she sees that she knows what is good um, for these uh, stars and what's best for their professions, etc. And so she launches a defense of their acting and the kinds of roles, stereotypical roles that they were playing um, all through the uh, 30s and, and into the 1940s in her column because the NAACP is uh, criticizing them and um, arguing against these kind of racially stereotypical roles that are uh, popular in Hollywood. So she launches a defense of these actors and actresses. And um, she sees it as a way to attack civil rights. Um, and also she sees it as part of anti-communism because she's one of those people that links the civil rights movement to communists. So she sees the um, NAACP as, as communist or certainly communist uh, influence. So it's sort of a, a double-edged um, campaign here that she's uh, uh, wielding in defending these stereotypical representations of African Americans. But then exactly, you have these new actors and actresses on the scene Sidney Potier, Harry Belafonte, Dorothy Dandridge, uh, Lena Horne. Um, Paul Robeson was already making uh, movies. She did not like him. Um, and so you have these new black actors and actresses who don't want to play those stereotypical roles, want to play more human uh, roles, um, and uh, Hopper does not like this. And so, um, you know, she, she wants to keep the old stock stereotypes um, in, in play in Hollywood. So Sidney Poitier is one of the ones that she tries as much as she can to ignore um, until he's such a big star uh, by 1958 when he makes The Defiant Ones, she actually has to interview him and she, she, avo you know, 
she could have interviewed him back in the you know early 50s, but um, she avoids it until really he is such a box office star that for her to ignore him is going to hurt her column and her credibility. Um, so she does interview him then, and then she interviews him later when he makes um, Lilies of the Field, for which he wins the Best Actor Oscar. And um, but what's amazing about uh, those interviews with um, uh, with Potier is, of course, she has to bring up politics because she's such a political person. She brings up the civil rights movement, and um, she brings up Brown versus Board of Education um, uh, from 1954, and she also brings up the Civil Rights Bill, which was making its way through Congress in 1963 when she interviews uh, Sidney Potier, and she is critical of both. She's critical of Brown. Um, she's critical of you know the integration of the school. She's critical of the Civil Rights Bill, and she tries to get Potier to um, agree with her, which of course he doesn't because you know he is um, a civil rights activist. And um, you really see his dilemma. I mean, he's quite gracious, but his dilemma of trying to explain where he stands politically, what he believes in, and you know to disagree with her uh, kindly. Um, but yes, for her, um, she sees the changes in representations of African Americans toward a more positive, uh, more humane or human um, uh, uh, representation. She sees that as you know part of Hollywood going in the wrong direction. We talked about Winchell and the fact that he was quite conservative and the fact that Parsons, on the other hand, was relatively apolitical. I'm curious if you think that there is any kind of inherent conservatism to the celebrity gossip industry. That is actually a very interesting question. I mean, the thing about Winchell is he changes. Um, in the 1930s, he's actually a, a New Deal Democrat, and he goes and meets Roosevelt, and he right. helps campaign and all that. So he actually shifts over time. So that's quite um, interesting, whereas Hopper is uh, consistent. I have to say, to me, I thought of this as um, a contradiction. I assumed, I used to think of celebrity gossip as much more on the liberal side um, in the sense of um, the, uh, you know, kind of going, uh, exposing, uh, going after the big, you know, powerhouses. In a way, gossip as a weapon of the weak, um, as a way to, um, you know, uh, be critical of people in power. Um, and, but I I would have to say, you know, that this is not, um, it's not across the board because there are other uh, celebrity gossip columnists that are more liberal. And in fact, uh, Lewis Smith, who um, uh, has, uh, you know, wrote a, a little item about Hopper when my book came out, um, she says, never agreed with Hopper's politics. Right, so you know, even she did, um, and even at the time, you know, especially when people were writing her obituary um, after she died in 1966, many celebrity uh, gossip columnists were saying uh, things like, you know, never agreed with her politics, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's you know, in a rule that uh, celebrity gossip columnists are necessarily going to be uh, conservative, uh, but definitely we see that in this case um, with Hopper and with Winchell shifting and Ed was conservative as well. You've given us so much to think about, but what I want to ask you in our final moments is if you could tell us about what's next for you. Oh, 
Oh, I am uh, sticking with uh, Hollywood and politics, uh, and I'm turning my attention to actually liberalism in Hollywood, Hollywood liberalism. So my first book was about the left, and this book I see as about the right, and I now want to work on uh, the center, I guess. And I'm working on a project on the producer-director Stanley Kramer, who made what we call uh, social problem films or message movies in the late 50s and early 60s. And he made movies about race and about nuclear war and about um, uh, all sorts of other sorts of uh, interesting issues and uh, the Holocaust and gets a lot of attention and discussion around these issues in making these movies. And he, similar to Hopper, is somebody who hasn't been quite as respected as you would, um, as I think their significance um, uh, should earn them, should garner for them. So I see him very similarly. He's somebody who's quite criticized as not a good filmmaker and as an exploiter of these controversial issues. And I guess I want to, just, just as with Hopper being seen as an eccentric crank, say, wait a second, there's more here. And um, if we look more deeply, we see the, the breadth and the contributions um, that, they are, that they are making. Wow, that sounds terrifically interesting, and I'm really excited to read a completely different take on Kramer, because as you say, I don't think that I've ever heard someone talking about looking closer at Kramer's films, so that's, that's fascinating, um, and I'm glad that it's going to be on the horizon. I want to thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. It's, it's been great to talk to you, and I think our listeners have gotten a lot out of this. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks so much, folks. You've been listening to New Books in Popular Culture. I'm Erin Lee Mock, and today we spoke to Jennifer Frost. She's the author of Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, Celebrity Gossip and American Conservatism, and it's out from New York University Press. Thanks again.